0: The subject for the evening talk is the poetry of city life. <clears throat> I think it is quite frequently expressed by those who uh, abide for any length of time the problems and the difficulties of actually living in a city. And sometimes when we look at our relationship to what we call the city, we're of course looking at the world around us through particular formations and images of our mind. There is a repetition of those formations and images. They become, for us, quite substantial. And then through language, through communication with each other, plus our thoughts, we build up. Our picture and our image of what the city is, what life is like in the city. And this city, the city, becomes then our world, and this world we live and move and breathe and think and feel and have our being. And we see too in the world that we live in, globally and um, locally, there is often a very strong. Kind of gravitational push towards living in the city various circumstances of course economic and so forth but there's a kind of pull towards living in the city because it appears to provide more opportunity for one's welfare one's development in different ways but the voice which one hears again and again in the city is that in the city there, uh, there is much which is one is disapproving of And in that kind of relationship to the idea of the city, there is a rebellion inside and sometimes the city dweller yearns for the alternative, yearns to get out of the city. And there are some, and there will be some of you in here as well, of course, who, if you may recall, some days, weeks, months, years ago, who said to yourself, well, I need to come to the city, I need to spend some time for whatever, work, study, commitments, and so forth. And after I've completed that course, that activity, then I'll go back to my roots, I'll go back to a rural situation, I'll go and live by the the sea, I'll go to some other place somewhere in this huge, immensely beautiful country, and I'll dwell there. And some, of course, as you know, deep down in your hearts, have not made... That um, move, the probability is you won't be making that move. <laughs> and the comp- the compensation for that is two or three weeks a year, which one calls uh, an escape um, into the uh, nature and to the vastness of things, and in that genuinely and hopefully some genuine renewal emerges. So there's a the situation. We live in the city. We often We, I don't live in the city, you live in the city. (laughs) One of the few occasions when I can say you and not include myself. That in the relationship to the city, what we keep doing with a substantial image and picture which we provide to each other of the city is, I think if we look at ourselves and speaking of city life, frequently the unfavourable is accelerated as a perception and perhaps too infrequently is the favorable. And there's somehow, there's some kind of odd gratification which it gives us to complain. <laughs> and we find that over many circumstances, the complaining mind keeps bolstering my idea, our idea of the city. And I think we might say with regard to that, that the city again and again gets a very bad press. And I think we need in our language and communication to look differently, but also to look inwardly at our relationship to that. And since the the subject of the talk is um, the poetry of uh, c- city life, I have been um, far more ambitious than I am usually willing to be, and have dared to bring some poetry, and even worse, some of the poetry which I (laughs) have (laughs) written. And um, just just with with regard to that, and others of you who also uh, from time to time um, appreciate to let the creative impulse of poetry arise, I find for myself that I can write whatever letters, maybe an article, story, or... um, material, preparation for a book, or whatever it might be, and feel reasonably, acceptably comfortable with it. But there is something about poetry itself which I think most unfortunately has got elevated in terms of language into a special category. And so that people who like to write poetry, like myself, but would never dare go as far as to call oneself a poet because the associations with that is of the elite world, of the Whitmans and the Blighs and the, and the Blakes and I uh, can't think of any other poets. The Keats and the... No, 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 no. Thank you. Well, here we go. <laughs> right, right. And, and so one in this dreadful world that we live in of the comparing mind, Sometimes we find ourselves in a particular field of interest or creativity, and we are inspired by various people, in this case poets, but unfortunately the inspiration easily leads to comparing and judging, and in the light of such illuminated uh, writers of the language, we pale, pale away into insignificance. So think in any kind of activity where there is inspiration, whatever field you and I may be working with, let's know the difference. Let's have the capacity and the clarity to distinguish inspiration and some of the unfortunate side effects, comparing and judging, in which most times, nearly always, we feel worse off. Having um, said that, it allows me to feel more <laughs> more comfortable reading the poem. <laughs> so, in city life, say <laughs> la vie. In city life, when we when the image which comes and comes to my mind and maybe to yours, it's in city life, the view, the kind of image, both in eye and in ear is one which, in a way, and as the Buddha has frequently pointed out this characteristic of human beings, is to look and to isolate. He speaks of this frequently, to look and to isolate. Isolated in Nepali is called uh, nimitta. This looking and isolating. This isolating means that we focus on a particular and build from that. So sometimes we think city, city thinks in the way of concrete, straight lines, the streets, the traffic, etc., etc. So sometimes there is a movement inside of ourselves which endeavors to regard differently. Something spontaneously comes from ourselves. And one poem here I would like to, uh, if I may, uh, read to you is a small uh, contribution and something which I suspect and believe that many of you will be immediately familiar with. It's called I Walk the Block. Steel might of city ardor, of concrete matchboxes, with carved structures and sharp turning points. Straight lines of parallel exhaust pipes, with traffic lights rotating clockwork orders. Purposeful paces clicking the sidewalk. Left, right, left, right, turn, turn, turn. Block of time to form cash point queues inside automatic doors and metal trolleys. Office furniture nailed in glass houses, press alt to choose commands, help windows, faint hum of fluorescent lights, traffic smiles and hurtling skyward bound lifts up and down with plastic money and cold fax machines. Worship of efficiency of hardback chairs, files with metal drawers and safety pins and plastic coffee slopping menu of appointments. Remembering to breathe in-out, in-out, hallows down the regimented orderly corridor with its pressed suits and manicured nails. Momentarily, my winged joy of imagination rescues me from these structured formations, a tropical landscape of fruit-bearing texture with green frogs, of lotus ponds and the cascade of the waterfalls and wilderness banishing this bordering fate. This mindful breath, elucidating primitive pollen, this beloved embryonic life re-emerging, undoing harsh parameters of office blocks and the punctual performance of the underground so that the flamingo can fly above Main Street. <coughs> so sometimes our relationship in our looking at our world, our city, city world, It's a rather narrowly narrowly defined world. And it's a world in which the perception fixes humanity. It fixes the human world. It establishes the human world. And in that, streets, office, office blocks, apartments, etc. In a way, that isolation hinders us from seeing. That which is of the organic world right in our city. Sometimes that shows itself in that flourish of the creative imagination. And all that too is with the city life. It's a contrast to it. But equally I think important in our city life is to really observe, and particularly observe with a heartfulness, those things of the city life which are not human-made not concrete not of information, not of knowledge, not of technology. And if we neglect that, if we can't see that with each other, if we can't see that in our world around, I think we'll live in constant reaction, if not volatile negativity, towards life in the city. The city embraces much more than the image. So I say in the creative imagination. Let us notice... That. Let us notice the trees in the park. Let us notice the plants at home and really give care and attention to that. Let us notice the the lawns. Let us notice the the night sky and the morning and the evening. Let's really bring that into our city. And so, so, thus, as with the teachings too, each breath that we take in a mindful and heartful and conscious way, in a way, each breath that manifests, I believe. Is a real reminder to some deeper roots. It's a real reminder of organic life, and that that too is as much the city as those severe, the severity of the straight lines, as the as the accumulation of concepts and knowledge and all of its distribution. So see, when we breathe in a way, we breathe life, we breathe light into this fixed environment that we've made together. And as I say, let the organic life and, that, and beauty of that, let us really remember that. And as the, the, the Greens say, in, w- in a way, our home, our real roots of our home, is in a way not so much in that hospital where we were born, or in that apartment, or in that town or country, but in a way, if we're looking into our life and our real roots, come from the tropical rainforest. 60,000 years ago, approximately, it is said, that's where you and I emerged from. And sometimes in our appreciation of those organic things, sometimes some of the artwork in our home, sometimes some of the, the films and the documentaries which we love to see, I think some of those nature films really do help to touch us deeply. They remind us of something. And therefore in our city life we can be touched in many, many ways, but let the nature of the day touch us. Let the breath be our reminder in any city situation. Sometimes when we are walking the block, of course, we are walking the block, and the most familiar times may be in the morning as we leave our home, but also when we come to the when we come to the end of the day. But one of the things which is spoken of, of course, a great deal in the teachings, such as the teachings given here at the the centre here and elsewhere, is the power and the importance of mindfulness. And sometimes, let's say with mindfulness and with an awareness in life, what we see with mindfulness in a conscious way is that we're establishing a relationship. That's what mindfulness does. If one says to oneself, one looks at one's day, from the morning that you and I wake up in the morning to the time that we actually take rest at night, if we say, as the teachings have said again and again for thousands of years, all things in life genuinely matter equally, all moments of life support and dependent on each moment, if all things are really worth a human being's interest and attention, from the most subtle to the most major, what's going to make that link? What's going to help show you and me, that we care for all things of life. So the spiritual teachings have said again and again, is be conscious, be mindful, and in that, be caring and respectful to the ordinary and the everyday, because it's worthy of our attention, very important, it's worthy of our attention, no matter what it is, but also because when we are conscious, when we are truly attentive to the ordinary and the everyday, we're on the edge of discovery when we live blindly, mechanically, habitually, when we live as, as the servants of machinery, which we can easily do that, we'll never be on the edge of discovery. We are servants of the machinery. So another poem on, this, on the theme of, of mindfulness, of awareness, of witnessing. It's called The Grace of Nowhere. <laughs> Call me to this moment with its slung togetherness. In whatever we are embroiled in this parameter of time, are we but afraid to fall into time's nuance? Take comfort in our absorbed vocation to all this. All forms want to stay on top of things, to not be hemmed by the moment's edges that are never to be traced so unmarked with its grave doubts over funeral services. Mindfully, I remain steadfastly edgeless, with dreams and thoughts spread-eagled through the moment's glistening face, with ambrosia impacting as momentary existence. With grace and wishes, I cannot throw myself into this harbour of seeming varied presence, but I cannot yank myself from its witness. Endearingly, I never belong to here now, yet I confess nowhere else holds me. What is this delectable sweetness that leaves me nowhere, this unencumbered truth, this steadfast home, this timeless rooting that knows no relationship nor engagement, nor disengagement, nor funeral service. Sometimes in our establishing our relationship, in being a conscious human being, we become conscious of the content. Sometimes the content in our life, in our city life, is dealing with the things which we call the real world that which we have made and given much substance to. The relationship, or absence of it, the job, the career, the financial circumstances, the meditation. Easily we give substance to that. And then we say, this is what it is to live in the real world, that which we've really impregnated with something which emerges from us. And sometimes this real world of this, and then this, and then this, it obscures a vision. It is, we can't see beyond the edges of the real things which really matter in our life. And then we take an interest in the whole of the day. The witnessing, not only of those things which we call the real world, but all those things which we neglect and ignore. So the edges are not so defined for us. And in that witnessing and in the silence and the stillness of that witnessing of that mindfulness sometimes there's a sense that can come through that. Something other. Something something vast. Something so vast that as it were the reality of a funeral service loses its meaning. So you see with spiritual teachings with our looking into life, looking into the nature of things. Though it's very important with mindfulness and meditation to reduce the pressures and stress in our life, to live in a more harmonious and integrated way with ourselves and with others, and to give care to our life, and all the immense value of that, in a very practical and down-to-earth way, and that's one of the great credits of centres such as this and elsewhere, but. Let's never forget the, the deep, profound, liberating imminence, the way of silent witnessing of the nature of things, in which in that silent witnessing there can be a discovery which transcends all this. Let's never neglect the mystical, the transcendent, so that even though our heart may be truly focused on living skillfully and living wisely, and living in an integrated way in all the profound personal and social economic significance of it, but never let it be at the expense of something which is of mystery. Something which our words and our language and our <coughs> skills can never hope to approach. So I say that in mindfulness and that clear clarity of heart and mind, in that moment of sheer mindfulness, we are standing. As a human being, right on the edge of immense discovery. Sometimes, when we're going, we're going home, wherever uh, uh, home home may be. And I think home, of course, matters a great deal to us. And like many many other things in our life, rather unfortunately, in a way, with with home. Home has an image to it, it has a a parameter to it, a defined area. And of course, as human beings, one of the great tragedies of our life is that we have become extremely territorial, territorial with with our space, with our generosity of spirit, with our hospitality. And sometimes the embodiment of that, the fixation of that, is around the concept of home, the idea of of home. And and I think our awareness of what is home truly needs to be expanded much, much further than the convention. And if you notice in yourself, in your daily life, and I notice in mine, some adherence to the concept of clinging and holding to my space, my home, my property, my piece of the earth or whatever, this possessiveness itself is something which truly, truly needs to be really examined. Can I live as a human being and be utterly free from the parameter which comes with the idea of my? Can I, as a human being, be utterly free, utterly free from the parameters which is defined by my? My, not just the talk and convention, I can say my tape recorder, my machine my poetry my home, my whatever ordinary talk of course but one knows in its movement of the language of the word it's unpossessive there's an unpossessive way of relating to that and I think home and things of home suddenly, sometimes generate out of us extraordinary possessiveness extraordinary degree of clinging to us and it doesn't really matter to some degree how much one has, one, as one knows, those of us who have been in the monk's life where in the monastery we had eight, eight possessions, a spare set of robes, the begging bowl, the razor, and a couple of other things which I've long since forgotten what they were. The amount of possessiveness <laughs> that can come when you've got little, <laughs> believe me, in- <laughs> And there's a peculiar, sometimes, reverse of values, if I may say, in spiritual, spiritual spiritual values. And a very clear example to this, I remember um, years ago uh, when I was ordained. Sometimes we look at people and, and there's a, a, um, a peculiar um, envy of what they have, whatever it might be, appearance, clothes, and, and other items. And the thought arises, I wish I had that, that, that. Clearly, that's an incredibly expensive uh, shirt, which incidentally, incidentally came from Kmart. And um, other uh, items which we look, look at the car, a powerful symbol for all of this. And I was just delighted and privileged to be driven here in, in an old banger, 1972. And those things, I think, are very important. Sometimes in the monk's, monk's life as well, I always remember we got it a monk got out of a, a rickshaw that I was uh, uh, in somewhere in the uh, countryside in the Tha- Thailand. And as the, the monk got out, his robe got caught in the wheel and the wheel was turning, so there was a terrible rip and tear through, through, through the robe. And, um, and, the, and so the robe looked really you know, worn and ragged through this, the wheel, getting jammed in the rim of the wheel. And just at that time, uh, another monk was wa- walking by, and he saw this, and he rushed up, monks the not allowed to r- run in the rules, but anyway, he rushed up to the monk, and he said, please, please, ex- swap robes, please exchange robes, let me have this ragged robe, because if you have a really old ragged robe, oh, credible status. <laughs> <laughs> so there he's clasping his hands, clasping the hands together, please let me have a... Let me have your robe, I'll give my, take my robe and I'll take this one, just as it is, please, please. So sometimes there's this reverse of, uh, of values. And I think sometimes in the world that we live in, and the, the impact that the world makes upon us, envy can take many forms. And in city life and in the comparisons of city life and in the way of city life, one of the things which is the, sometimes a the malicious undercurrent in city life is envy. Are we living with envy? Are we any the lesser or any the better for getting what another or others have? Are we any the better for, and any the more seasoned and mature and wise in life by following the, the, the norms of others and all the com- ruthless competitiveness that goes with it? Aren't we tired of all of that? Because competitiveness is a license for envy. It's a breeding ground for it. And sometimes we can only see each other through those rather distorted glasses. And not the organic life. Not the people sharing life together, participating in all this together. We see through the mode of wanting what the others have. Aren't we tired of all of that? End of the day. We, go, we leave home in the mornings, our day passes by, and we come home at the, at the end of the day. How is the end of the day for you? What's your usual responses at the end of the day? I did give a small example. Um, Amnesty International, which I, and I'm sure you do, love very, very much, and for their very important and profound work that they are doing on those who are deprived of the freedom of their day. I went to speak to Amnesty International at their international secretariat in London. It must be perhaps a year or two ago. And I spoke to them about dealing with stress, pressure, suffering, dealing with this exceptionally painful information and painful stories and accounts which come to them every day of their working day. And in that conversation, then, we had some discussion and dialogue together afterwards. And I said, let me please ask you the questions rather than uh, you ask me. And when I was asking those uh, questions, I asked them about the end of the day. And there was a kind of fairly unanimous agreement that they would get home, feel utterly burnt out, very, very tired, and having to deal with some of the most painful chapters of human history and human events. And then what would be quite typical to do would be to go home, and what happens? Walk in and turn on the television, put on the on switch, Turn on the news. What is the news? Suffering. One suffering after another. And yet there's a peculiar kind of relaxation in that. And sometimes and a number of you here, of course, are working in work and fields of serving other people and environment animals. And I think one has to take great care and look at what happens when you are out of the role? No role has any permanence. It arises when the conditions are there, and it ends. Liberation is, re- is freedom through the role, but freedom in the absence of it as well. And sometimes, in the absence of it, we just fall back into a habit pattern which doesn't serve our realisations and our liberation. End of the day. This working life of recycled brain cells of intensive becoming of language formations. Key twists. Home. The rectangles and squares of desktop existence dissolve into the leaves and trunks of pristine nature. The day's conventions have lost their meaning, following the space of paged memories, directives. Home. Opportunity for leisured stillness. A settling into the lucid shape of this armchair, with its soft uprightness and unshakable steadiness. The brain function is stilled, measuring cells serving no purpose. A quietitude enters the soles of the feet. Nothing enters this sanctuary, sublime rectitude, this public persona of serious authority rendered unavailable, void of existence, with quiet relief and subliminal appreciations This substantial existence, this street mind, is quietly empty, with barely a shadow between the door and this hallowed spot. Masks of persona no longer stab this flowering silence, this otherness which cannot be fathomed, nor absorbed into busyness or serious mechanism of current theories and problem solutions. Joy mediates into this untoward's presence, with its endless landscape. From this still chair, this tangible embrace of non-persona, a smile fills the sanctuary and the double glazed windows open by themselves. I think our home and the circumstances of our home can really provide us with an opportunity and i think really can be seen as as a as a sanctuary as a, a sanctuary in the real deep sense of the word of a sanctuary and i noticed both as as a parent as a person like yourselves who has a regular number of friends and mm-hmm. visitors that still within the context of all of that there is still those times and those moments at home where there's opportunity just for that stillness of things, just for that quiet presence in which our public persona and the authority that we have and the uh, obligations and commitments that we have actually all fade away and they have no real significance or meaning for us. They have lost their meaning in those times. And that loss of meaning in those times is very, very significant for human beings. So that we see the relevance of meaning actualized in our life through role And sometimes, in the quietness of just sitting in the chair, doing utterly nothing in the sanctuary of one's home, that those moments, few minutes as they may be, are very, very vital for our renewal. And and a renewal, in a way, I feel, which is such that the image of the city isn't so biased and prejudiced. That we we have no wish to to be anti-city, and to keep feeding that with each other because we see, yes, the limitations of city but yes, we see nature here and too we, we, see, we feel the life here we feel the throb of the people as they go to work in the morning and return home at night and we feel a vibrancy there which our tight, strict concept of the city won't reveal to us because we're a, primi- a prisoner of the image of what a city is and it inhibits a liberating seeing of it And I think too, and I think one of the important things with the teachings, spiritual teachings, has, in a way, in our acknowledgement of our life, and we see that if we move outside of the parameters of the city, I don't mean physical terms of going away, we don't need to do that. Moving outside the parameters of our idea of the city, and moving outside of that, we might have the opportunity in our life to expand out the field, to include the parameters of our birth and our death. What would it be, as the tradition has said again and again, to really look at the accommodating principle of birth and death? Here we are, you and I, we're living our life in a somewhat uncertain world, and there between is the fields of birth and death and the whole range of experience. So I wrote a poem, a little more um, personal perhaps than the other three, but hopefully a poem which uh, in a way speaks speaks for more than myself. And I think again with the mindfulness, with the activity of breathing as a direct reminder of organic life, that remembering to breathe in daily life is a precious thing to remember. We are remarkably skillful with our fax machines, not that I have one, but no doubt it'll be en route, and with uh, and with our di- di- diaries. What are those thick diaries called? The, um, hmm? we, can yeah. get a yeah, we can glance. Yeah, we glance, pile of <laughs> fax <facts laughs> organisers, etc. Friends in California have been telling me that sometimes when a person loses her or his organiser, they get into such a mess that <laughs> that... These days there are now the um, psychotherapists to deal with people who have lost their organisers. I <laughs> know <laughs> we have this image of California and, and, and etc. Et but how, <laughs> how easily, how easily, again something which begins to matter to us that with that holding on to that the fear, the fear the fear of loss, the fear of, oh my God, if I lost this, I'd be in such a hell of a mess. How could I cope? How could I deal with it? How could I get through the day? (laughs) So sometimes I think it's important that we take some of those things which we have built up a possessiveness about and really understand that life, as much as we would like it to be, simply isn't under our control in the way that we imagine and the countless circumstances can affect whatever. And if our vision isn't beyond the parameters of self-interest we're going to be living our life from one day to the next thinking in terms of it's all rests with me it's all up to me. So sometimes we might take our thing which we're afraid to lose Whatever that may be, including our own life for that matter, as it were, and place that right in front of us and have some sense of something vaster than that, beyond that. And sometimes just to put that which we, that ring which has had sentimental value, which belonged to our grandmother and it's been passed down and now I've got it, I would hate to lose this ring, and all the associations through, in a way, naive sentimentality. And there's no room for that in liberation. There's no room for that in, in, in really deeply inquiring because it in, that sentimentality inhibits joyfulness. It inhibits great discovery. And therefore, to live with the way things unfold in the world is a tremendous challenge for us. So much so, I would say, that in a way, our whole life has to be offered to the world. We have to bring our whole life from our head to us to the thoughts and our feelings in a way and say, this isn't mine, this doesn't belong to me I didn't make for this, I didn't produce this I'm not the creator of this it's come out of the vastness of the wonder of the nature of things it belongs to that, let me give it back let let, let me not, not live with this mythology it's me and mine the last breath when this last breath dissolves into the earth The blackberry bushes will rustle, and the wheat will glisten in the wind, and the crows will nest in spartan trees. The shades of the seasons will be indistinguishable. It will not be a long breath, this final act of homage to the ploughed soil with its furrows into posterity. There will be no marks on my grave, no signs of my existence. I have drifted unknown to myself in this ripple of warm vibrations. These spices of cardamom, cinnamon and ground ginger effortlessly dissolve where that blended taste rests like an invisible web in a summer's breeze. The pursued things of life have no merits for they forge a Spartan existence and have no gravitational pull for my last breath warms the earth allowing the wind to safeguard the dissolved line along the ocean where sand is wedged before the sway of the wheat. I will usher in my last goodbye without church services or prayers so that the trees may reveal the shade where the squirrel scrambles to safety and the (coughs) rabbit halts in its tracks and the cloud dissolves under its own weight. For these are my last rites, my joyful requiem, For my final goodbye, I shall say thank you, as my last breath becomes the wind and my body becomes the grains of sand. (coughs) May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Let us have just a uh, minute, quite silent period together, shall we please?